Hi, welcome to this very special series of Grazie Her's Life on the Land, where we deep dive into the lives, passions and projects of each of the seven national finalists of the 2023 AgriFutures Rural Women's Award. For the last 21 years, the AgriFutures Rural Women's Award has empowered and celebrated the leadership of women involved in Australia's rural and emerging industries, businesses and communities. Equipped with the $15,000 Westpac grant, each of the state and territory winners are in the running for the national winner and runner-up to be announced in September, awarded an additional $20,000 and $15,000 Westpac grant, respectively. My name is M. Herbert, your host for this series. The Rural Women's Award is brimming with entrepreneurs. And this appetite and business tenacity is completely entwined in the DNA of today's guest. Emma Louise Gibbons is on a mission to reshape Australia's pet treat market with her use of insect protein and local Queensland veggies in her treat business, Hudson Toke. And while she's at it, she's going to take on the US pet food market too, worth an estimated $57 billion. Born and raised on a beef cattle and cropping property, the winner of the 2023 Queensland AgriFutures Rural Women's Award says growing up in the bush meant she learned to innovate early. I've always just had a passion or a creative mind that always comes up with either good ideas or crazy ideas. Combination (laughs) of both. um, Yep. And then I'm quite a driven personality, so once I get it in my head, I sort of have to follow through and make it happen so I think right from a young age like I my parents couldn't take me to gymkhanas so I'd set up my own gymkhanas and invite all the um, farming families from around the area and get all the grazers out there doing like barrel racing and bending and show pony (laughs) so I think I've just always had it in me my dad's quite entrepreneurial as well he's like that way orientated as well. But yeah, definitely something that's just inside. Mm. I think probably also, I mean, growing up on, you grew up in a, a beef property, beef and cropping. Yeah. Probably seeing just, just from the nature of the job, being a producer requires innovation and flexibility. Do you think that somehow kind of that was interwoven in your DNA, your business DNA? Yeah, I think so. Definitely. Like um, obviously we had the, the struggles of a 10-year drought so you did have to be very innovative um thinking like watching my parents like think how are they going to gain extra income so my mother even set up a um a a two-acre herb farm at one stage she was supplying all the restaurants up and down the east coast of Australia with fresh herbs I think she's like one of the first in Australia to do so so yeah maybe yeah just innovation out of desperation a little bit and and climate (laughs) that Mm. affects so many people in the rural area yeah it's just out of necessity isn't it you see a need and um or a roadblock and you come up with a way to to meet that or get around it what was the first business you started because your businesses have been so varied I think it's really interesting yep so the first business I started when I was 23 with my father and another business partner and we used to, uh, it was called Mazgold Management, and we ran all the picking crews for fruit and vegetable picking in the Lockyer Valley, Stanthorpe and Bundaberg. And we used to, like, supply certain 
uh, other businesses like Wagner's and stuff with welders and that kind of thing. So I used to be up at 3 a.m. sorting out all the crews every single morning, making sure they turned up and had sharp knives. Mm. <laughs> and um, quite often had to pick with them as well. So, yeah, it was a very stressful business, but I, I became very systems orientated. And I think mm. that was a good introduction into how to run a business, especially with people. God, yeah, managing people is surely one of the hardest things about um, a business, particularly in the employment industries. And so where did you go from there? What was the next step? I ended up selling out to our partner and because he wanted to um, get some big investors in, whereas we wanted to grow it a little bit more organically. So so we sort of split ways and I did a Jillarooing stint up in the Gulf of the Northern Territory for a little while for mustering season while I, while I sought out where I wanted to go to next, which was awesome fun. And then we, my boyfriend, now husband, moved to the Sunshine Coast and decided to make a life here. And I actually, my next business was a tanning studio, quite con- controversial these days, but... <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it was a once again a good way to meet people and be part of a really fun, energetic Sunshine Coast regional area. What was that like moving from the bush to the coast? We'd always holidayed here every ho- like every Christmas holiday, so it's sort of a bit like a second home, I guess. It felt really natural to move here, and when we did move here, it was back in the year two thousand. It was still a big country town, really, like just everyone still got around in bare feet and it was quite relaxed. It's changed a lot in Mm. the last 20 years. So it was actually a really easy, natural migration to the sunny coast for both of us. What is it that you've always loved about running your own show and, and I suppose what do you find are the greatest challenges? I love bringing my creative side to life a lot of the times I love I guess I must love being in control of it (laughs) (laughs) yep (laughs) I like being in control of my own decisions whether they be right or wrong because there's always failures and I love learning from that and I seem to be very systems orientated so I love adjusting the systems to create quality whether it's a service or a product, and what I do now basically incorporates all of that. Mm. And making progression and, and breaking into new industries, like I love having those crazy ideas and everyone telling me they're not going to work and then me showing them, yes, I will make it work, and they do, generally. generally. <laughs> Good for you. Well, I think it's probably testament to your own um, tenacity than, than anything else. Um, yep. <laughs> so you went from, you know, having your fruit picky, picking business to tanning and then you had a detox centre with alternative therapies. I mean, they're very yes. varied. It's certainly different industries each time. What What have been some of your learnings or some of your biggest failures which you've learned from over the last 25-odd years? So basically dealing with uh, like my services it's always been with people and in my head people essentially are animals so we all like be treated in a nice way I always knew I wanted to get back into something to do with animals as a whole because I've always been animal obsessed I used to 
always bring home like stray, you know, stray chickens, stray, <laughs> stray lambs from people stopping me on the side of the road going, oh, do you want this baby lamb to bring up? I'd be like, sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> much to my parents' disgust. We've learnt along the way to be diversified in our approach to business at all times so not to have all our eggs in one basket, especially with customers and things like that. We've learnt that the hard way. We've learnt to be vertically integrated so we only have to, so we can rely on ourselves and we are lucky in the fact that I have a brain that can create things right from scratch and take them all the way through to the very end as a consumable product, especially in how in Hudson Toke and what we do here. Yeah, there's been lots of failures, there's been lots of tears, but I think, once again, like you said, to have like a strong drive and absolute tenacity to be successful in what you do, not necessarily monetary, but um, personally successful and feel fulfilled, I think that's been the ultimate lesson. Mm, Yeah, it would be very easy to probably kick it all in and, and take a nine to five. So it does require a serious drive to make meaningful change. It can't just be driven monetarily because surely that would not fulfill or keep that that drive going. You did study animal nutrition and production at uni. So do you, does it feel quite full circle to come back to animal health with Hudson Toke? Yeah, it absolutely does. I think that definitely gives me confidence in my knowledge because I do do a lot of research and I'm constantly interested in all of that. And then even having the alternative health influence um, as well uh, gives me a really great understanding for, you know, supplemental, like like natural, um, uh, not remedies as such, but natural imports that we can put into our products that can uh, assist with animals' health. So that's been super important to me as well. Mm, and the science behind it, it's um, you, your husband has quite a science brain. So that obviously is a, a well, a great marriage, so to speak, both business and personally. I love the story behind the name of the brand. Can you tell me about that and and why you got into creating animal treats? After the GFC hit, we really wanted to put our brains together and create a, a business brand. We were already just looking at getting into the pet treat marketers per se. We were wholesaling to pet uh, pet shops and things like that, just the average pig ear and um, the basics, you know, rue bones and that kind of thing. Um, and we decided that we wanted to create a brand that we could diversify across the industry, whether it be with dogs or horses, because horses are a massive passion of mine. And we were sitting around throwing names. At, literally, it's like that. Um, the story of sitting around the kitchen table. A kid, our son was playing with his imaginary dragons behind us. Their names were Huds and Toke. And he goes, why don't you call the business Toke at the ripe old age of, I think he would have been two or three at the time. <laughs> and we're like, hmm, well, that could work. Maybe we call it Huds and Toke. And then it really encapsulates what we wanted to create as a, a family business that means so much to us. And with those names, they're not you like they're not names that anyone can relate to. So it's not like, you know, Annie Betty's annoying dog, Molly barking all the time. Or so we we could create a blank canvas in people's minds and build, you know, build a picture that we wanted to create in the mind with the names. And 
most people you have to repeat it three times, which is a good way of getting it to sink into people's heads. So they're like, what, what did you say? Hugs and what? It's like, no, it's huds and toke and quite often spell it out. So then it's just that hammering into people's heads and they don't forget the name because it's so strange. <laughs> and also I love that he had imaginary dragons. I mean, it's not like he had an imaginary friend or a dog or a goldfish. Oh, yeah, no, we had we had a full dragon city that used to follow us around. There was quite a few other dragon names there as well. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was really cool. So we, that's sort of why we wanted to go with the, the shield play as well on our logo was because we felt dragons were kind of that medieval European feel um and so we wanted to sort of stick to that theme we did ask him you know how do you see the dragons and and that's the sort of picture that he'd come up with in his head so we followed through with that and and we really felt that the shield was based off that dragon feeling but also depicted that quality of your strength. Mm, I love it. So did you always set out knowing that this would be a full-time family business or did it start as a side hustle and became that? No, we were all in right from the start, right or wrong. (laughs) That was probably the hardest bit. We had no other income. We had to make it work. It was our absolute goal. So I started creating the, the dog cookie products to begin with. Um, and we had to solve a lot of problems there with regards to Australia's climate being so warm because traditionally like you dip, you know, the cute, cutesy products in, in carbon yogurt, which doesn't last if it's got to travel across the Nullarbor um, and get stuck on a road train for <laughs> three weeks while the, the, there's a fire or a flood or some disaster. So I had to invent a... Um, uh, a frosting or a, well, we, we call it a frosting, but it's like a coating that was healthy for dogs um, and would stay looking the same on the other side if we wanted it to be a shelf stable, you know, actual viable product for the Australian market. So we invented that and started coating our cookies in that. And then in the meantime, I also recognised that there's no horse treats that were being manufactured in Australia at all. It was a few like I think two brands that were being imported in and I went, well, we've got to get into this because, you know, horses need treats too. <laughs> and we could see that there's a big, you know, there's a big opportunity there. So we got into manufacturing horse treats as well. So we had to learn about extrusion. Once again, a lot of tears. <laughs> we, we did have a mentor helping us get through all of that. Um, but sadly, he passed away to an aneurysm, but he did sort of impart the knowledge of persistence and you will get there eventually with it. And once you've got it, your whole world will change. So it's been a, a long, hard journey in manufacturing, but yeah, it's been awesome. And then, you know, working with primary producers then now, that that's sort of where we're at now is solving problems with excess produce and getting into new and emerging industries like the insect industry, things like that. Super exciting because we've, we've got the market, we've got the knowledge of how to create the products, we've got the knowledge of how to export. We're small enough and flexible enough and innovative enough to really create awesome products and make a difference. 
At the beginning, were in terms of your manufacturing, was this happening in your own kitchen or did you instantly go out and rent a space? How did that work? And were you bootstrapping the entire thing? Yeah, we rented a space. We bootstrapped the entire thing. I just searched everywhere for equipment that I thought could work for us because our product is our dough that we make, so our dog treats out of, isn't a normal dough. Like a baker comes in and goes, I don't know how you work with that. That's ridiculous. But we know that it's a product that's like healthy for dogs, great for their jaws, and and lasts longer than, say, a piece of shortbread that may crumble in five seconds. It's been designed so that if someone, you know, spends spends money on their their dog, say a donut, for example, they know it's going to last longer than three seconds unless it's a great time. Um, <laughs> and they can witness the, that moment and it brings joy and happiness with the fur family, so to speak. Mm. Did you do much market research at this stage or like how did you know that there was a market for dog treats and horse treats? So we did look at US trends as well. So we know we're about five to seven years behind the US. We could see there was a bit of a trend in like the more humanisation of pets, so to speak. When we first started, we were flat out getting people to buy a pig ear for their dog. You know, mm. like it's changed so much. Yeah, because this is 12 years 12 ago. Years. Yeah, 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 yeah. Even getting people to think outside the square of, you know, there are other things that dogs can chew on other than a pig ear as well. <laughs> That's probably way healthier. <laughs> yeah, so we did a lot of market research to a certain extent, but I also just believed that whatever we created, we could bring to market and make successful. I'm a bit of a believer and a doer. And also, have you noticed like some changes in even dog ownership in the last 12 years? I mean, especially during COVID, I know that the the dog market went completely nuts, but what are some stats around that? Yeah, I think like one in three households own a dog now. It's ginormous. Um, I think the pet food industry and treat industry in Australia is like worth $3.7 billion. Yeah, it's wow. just amazing. And and then you can extrapolate that into the US market. So Australia is quite small, you know, really in the whole scheme of things. You know, in the US, the pet food and treat market is worth $50 billion. Wow. So that's why we're really pushing hard for, you know, we can even get some of our products over into the US, which we are currently doing. You know, there's there's big gap there and you know Australia does have a good name for quality products clean products so there's definitely lots of opportunity to be had yeah for me like dog treats seems so niche but to have that sort of um, market input seems like absolutely staggering when you were starting to look into the the dog treats I mean what were some of the challenges around the raw import chain and the corporates taking over and, and the big prices around that? So it's still happening all the time. There's big movement in the pet pet market, whether it's with treats or with food. And the challenge for us, I think, is just to remain innovative. There's not many manufacturers actually left in Australia because manufacturing is really hard. So I think... By sticking with it through this whole growth stage, you now become a respected member of the pet industry and it's a lot harder for other people to get into. So there's definitely barriers to entry, especially 
mm. financially wise and and like market share wise because I, like I said Australia although we have a lot of dogs it is a small country and there's a big fight for the your share of the market so you've got to really be able to stand out and so what drove you to keep your manufacturing onshore and to start your own manufacturing plant well Australian made is the best of course (laughs) (laughs) yeah absolutely and I totally agree but you know just for the costs that's why people tend to go offshore isn't it is is because manufacturing is so much cheaper overseas yeah that's that's right but we wanted to stay true to being Australian and produce Australian products and utilizing Australian imports we just really want to support that side of things 100%. There was never a question of taking it overseas. It's it's never been an option that we've wanted to pursue. So we just had to get smarter, work harder, and create systems in place so that the, the costs aren't prohibitive. What was it about insect protein that really sparked your interest in dog treats? Definitely the sustainability side, like, knowing that traditional meat supplies to the pet industry are getting harder and harder to get, more expensive. Um, Once again, your big corporates are snapping up all the rendering plants, things like end supply chain as a whole. So as a small manufacturer, we could see that if we didn't take a good hard look at what could be a sustainable input for us, we would be left behind. And Mm. We've always had an interest in the sustainability side of the inputs as well so that we know we're doing the right thing by the planet ultimately. And insects just seemed like a really awesome option. I started my own insect farm because I wanted to see what it was all about. And I did that for a year with mealyworms just so I could understand, you know, what the challenges were in the industry. Uh, If I could get it off, like if I could grow, does that mean then that, we'd have like other people could do it on a larger scale and then we'd have consistent supply because that's always another um, issue that you have to think about with, you know, emerging industries. Are they going to be able to continue to grow with you? Mm. I I did discover that it is really quite a difficult industry to be a part of, especially in the mealyworm farm. However, the black soldier fly larvae, we started speaking with businesses like Goterra and Barty who were making big impacts in that industry and really utilising the food waste Mm. and becoming a part of food waste management in Australia. And so we decided to partner up with them and learn from them and actually get some insect meal through into our R&D pipeline, which we've been working really hard on, and create some products using that. So it's been, um, you know, we've been working on it for a couple of years now because you've got to sort of, work out how to fit it into the, the product pipeline. You've got to do the R&D work. Which what do you mean by R&D, takes, sorry? Uh, research and development. Okay. So say create products that you can actually bring to market that people are going to accept. And it's mm. been quite interesting to see how readily acceptable insect protein products have been with dogs because, you know, we've all seen dogs like snap at flies and eat them. <laughs> Yeah, and so you know, if you've if you own a dog, you've seen them snap at an insect somewhere along the way, or if you have had any contact with a dog in Australia, because there's so many flies, you see dogs like go for an insect. So it's quite a natural input for for a dog treat, and they love the flavour. So like palatability wise, it's just been awesome. 
I, I think some of the stats around the the insect protein is really interesting and obviously a big component of the sustainability factor. What are some of the stats around insect protein in terms of like how it compares production wise to beef, cattle and, and things like that and, and what it is as a protein? They're 12 to 25 times more efficient at converting feed into protein than cattle are. They use like 4% of the water that cattle do. And obviously, depending on how big your sheds want to get, like the land usage is barely barely anything in comparison. The meal itself is 60% protein, so it's a really high protein source. So we can pop that into our treats knowing that the dogs are going to get a really true high protein treat at the end of the day, which is, you know, a massive goal as well. Mm. And, and and price-wise, comparatively, it's definitely going to end up being a cheaper product. Your sustainability ethos also has kind of seeped into other markets, including veg. Tell me about how you're now working with producers to to meet some of their challenges and how that's worked in Hudson Toke. Well, I was approached by one particular farmer who had excess vegetables and he is seriously concerned about the rising price of electricity, which then in turn affects refrigeration prices moving forward, which I think a lot of people are now really having a good hard look at. And um, so getting these these excess produce into powder forms so that they can be stored without refrigeration, the nutritional integrity is kept in place if it's done correctly, and then we can utilise it, especially starting in the pet industry, and then that can then merge into the human side of production as well. So um, I'm working hard to create that pathway moving forward so we actually we actually got asked to do we we do a lot of collaboration with Krispy Kreme Donuts which is super fun and this year in America they wanted to promote their pumpkin spice range of donuts and so we're doing pumpkin (laughs) spice (laughs) range (laughs) and my the proviso for me was that we had to have good old Queensland pumpkins as part of the the product line so we've got over 200,000 donuts heading out next week full of beautiful pumpkin powder that we've created with the farmer and um, yeah so that just shows that it's really such a viable option now for farmers moving forward that you know there are other alternatives out there that can either be put into the pet industry because it is such a big industry and that can really in turn then help, you know, rural and regional communities. Like there's mm. there's a lot of studies out there that show that the pet industry is such a big contributor to that side. I'm really interested in, in coming back to your journey to exporting and your collaborations with international markets. But just before that, I'm interested in the scale. So you are now Australia's biggest horse treat manufacturer. What is the sort of scale that you're operating on in terms of product? How much product are you producing a year and and where are you wholesaling? So we have probably, I think we've got like 36 SKUs available in horse products. So that includes all your training treats right through to birthday cakes for horses. We sell tons and tons and tons of our training treats across Australia and I know pet well we do service a lot of produce stores pet stores are even starting to branch more into horse products as well um, saddleries and pet stock or their equine stores now 
um, have quite a big array of our equine products and they're, they're, they're happily to say they're the best performing as well, So, which is exciting. This year, I think, has been the most excitement I've ever seen around the horse's birthday, so things are changing for the ponies out there, which is nice. <laughs> They deserve delicious treats as well. So tell me about your journey to export. Anybody who's producing a product and looking to take it international is just, it's rife with challenges. When did you decide to take it overseas and what did that look like for you guys? Originally, we first started with a small shipment to Germany many years ago and that was with equine and some dog, but there wasn't a free trade agreement. It was like, it was pretty difficult to then look at doing anything bulk with that and a bit price prohibitive because of transport costs as well. So then we went to Japan. We've sold in Japan for quite a few years. You know, our products are quite, the, those certain products were very cute and suited that that style of market. And they actually did really well. We decided during COVID that it was going to be a little bit too hard to keep going if we wanted to get distributors over there because you've got to actually get over there and create that relationship. They're really relationship orientated and just having that big barrier, obviously, with COVID and Mm. everywhere being closed down sort of halted that side of things. In the meantime, we have been exporting to the US with Krispy Kreme Donuts So with the US, it's not just one country, it's 42 states. (laughs) So you have to, you have to have a license for every single state. You have to have a license for the product in every single state. Yeah, it's been a real challenge because there's no clear pathways for Australian manufacturers slash people who want to export to follow. Everything is a little bit. Mm, What sounds convoluted. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it really is. And I think, well, part of my whole goal with the Rural Women's Network is is to bring that to light a little bit more and show that there needs to be clearer pathways for export, especially in emerging industries and for um, niche products where we don't fit into specific categories anymore. So Australian sort of export setup is based around commodities as a whole and say mining and tech and that's about it but with the 21st century you know now upon us niche products and marketing due to the internet and that kind of thing is so much um, more fluid and modern and like you know more relevant that there is no easy path to follow or no direct guidelines to follow so we've had opportunities in different markets but we haven't been able to get the answers that we've needed to pursue them. So you've had to let those markets go, which I just mm. think is such a shame and it needs to change. It Frankly, it sounds exhausting. Like you really have to want it to make it happen because there are so many roadblocks. And also how do you even start to build those relationships? Do you just Google export to the US? I mean, how do you, you find the right people to talk to about you know, how did you get in touch with Krispy Kreme, for example? In in this scenario, they got in contact with us because we'd worked with um, Krispy Kreme Australia. But they just went, we want to bring your products in. You work out how to do the rest. And it's like, oh, okay. We're, and they're like, we're in human food. 
we don't know anything about pets. This is all on you. So then it's a whole another division of working with the American Feed Corporate, AAFCO uh, they're called. So they've got all their other certain rules. You have to be FDA accredited. So you do have to have contacts in the US um, to be able to do that as well. Um, and then you've got to follow their rules. So we're here in Australia, we're allowed to use spirulina and everything. I, over there, that's considered a, a banned f- feed additive. However, like, and that, because we wanted to have an all natural product, it's a colorant that we were using in the sprinkles. I had to physically go through every document and go, no, it's actually FDA approved to use it as a food colorant but it's not a feed additive and then you've got the language barrier. Although we speak English, we still speak a different language. So it's, it was interesting dealing with all that. There's a few rocking in the corner moments. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, this year has been heaps easier because obviously I already have the connections with each state. So I'm just reconnecting again going, okay, we're doing it again. There's no spirulina. We don't have to worry this time. Um, but you obviously you do have to check that all your inputs, which are normally acceptable here in Australia, are totally acceptable over there. Wow. And then get get a license for every single state. Well, the juice must be worth the squeeze or you wouldn't be going through such a ringer to get there. What is the goal for Hudson mm. Toke? Where do you want to go from here? Um, we definitely love, well, our, our goal is to build more into the US market, but in a slow and organic way because it is such a big market and can pretty easily squash you mm. very quickly. So you've got to be really careful with how you um, ramp up and you've got to approach it slowly, I think, especially just sheer numbers is just so huge. So just as an example, last year just with at the donuts we sent over for International Dog Day for Krispy Kreme, in one day they got 2.8 billion engagements with regards to that one product like i couldn't even comprehend i was sitting there going i don't even know i don't even understand that number it's too big <laughs> wow and it was on like the james corbin show it was just crazy like if you can get in even just going b to c straight e-commerce mm. it's doable because mm. the numbers are there you just need a tiny slice of the pie to make it a very, very large pie here. I mean, that's a business in, in and of itself, being able to mm. mentor other businesses or emerging industries in export. Yeah, well, that's right. And I, I think that is slowly going to become my path as well. I, mm. I, as I see, you know, we do need help um, in Australia. And if I can sort of, you know, there's been issues for us getting stuff into the UK. Once again, our product doesn't fit into certain categories. And everything's so slow moving that it's like, oh, we're going to lose contracts again as a result of, you know, how behind we've been set up to export. So I think there's lots that can be done in a positive manner and can't be that hard, really. It just has to be clear and clear pathways. At the moment, you just get passed from department to department and no one gives you like direct answers and no one wants to be responsible for the answer that they give. And I think that's a really big issue mm. that I could, that I probably could go on about, might get in trouble. And <laughs> I'd say but that yeah, entrepreneurial like, brain of yours is just whirring away with like how to solve it. Yeah. Yeah. And we have, we have come up with solutions because you have to, 
to to keep going. But I think moving forward for other people in our position, there's got to be easier answers. So what was the project that you put forward to win the 2023 Queensland finalists for the AgriFutures Rural Women's Award? So that was working with the insect protein into the dog treats as a sustainable protein input and supporting the insect protein industry as an emerging industry as a whole. And we're actually about to commission a whole new piece of equipment that that will allow the um, nutritional integrity of all of its ingredients to to remain intact and using a totally different kind of a, a method, which I'm a little bit secret squirrel on just mm-hmm. currently until it comes mm-hmm. to market. But yeah, it's quite, it's really exciting. And then that can, because insect protein, like, does have a really high smell that's why dogs love it and putting it through heating processes exacerbates that smell Mm. (laughs) for for the factory and the staff so we've come up with a piece of equipment that will allow us to put high you know high amounts of the the protein into products without any of those issues and is that what um, you will be utilising your $15,000 Westpac grant towards or what have you been putting that towards? Yeah, that's that's exactly right, towards mm-hmm. that and then um, more marketing into, you know, a bit of education with regards to the benefits of insect protein because it is a hypoallergenic input as well. So dogs with sensitive tummies, allergies, that kind of thing, it bypasses all of that. So it's really quite an exciting product full when- of healthy oils. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, when do you anticipate that the insect um, protein dog treats will hit the market? So we've already got one product that's out on the market. It's just one of our simple ones as a little training treat. And it's already, so, you know, we sent samples out to all our online customers and we've already had heaps and heaps of repeat customers going, I can't believe my dogs love these so much. So exciting. So we've already begun and then we have three new lines of um, semi-moist products, so they're a bit softer and so they're uh, great for dogs of all ages, shapes and sizes. Then once we've finished commissioning our new equipment, they'll be on the market. Do watch this space. That's so exciting. I Also, I just, you know, thinking about it, like dogs are really people's families and they, well, pets are in, in particular, and I think especially people are having children later or maybe not at all and dogs are really part of, of that family landscape in Australia. So, yeah, I think that it's a very exciting industry to be part of. What was it like for you being part of the AgriFutures alumni and, and joining that cohort as a 2023 finalist? Right from the start, it, it was probably the most positive and supportive interview. Like the first interview was I got off the, I think it was a phone call or a Zoom meeting. I got off and went, wow, that was the most positive experience I've ever had in my life. We've done quite a lot of awards and different processes to get to where we've got to and get our brand name out there. I actually rang them the next day and went, this isn't a bribery call. (laughs) I, I actually just wanted to give you some feedback and let you know that the way that was all done was such a positive feel-good experience that I, I thought you should know whatever whoever came up with the whole process and the 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 way of delivering and asking the questions that brought out the positivity was genius. So right from the start, I've been praising the whole process 
I just have found it nothing but supportive, right through to the all the organisational, the professional development, and the joining together of the the national finalists has just been second to none. Because I think quite often in business or you know you whatever process you're going through, you end up being a bit of a soloist. So it's nice to know that there's other women who are in the same boat, you know, experiencing the same things and then to connect and then know that you can rely on each other has just been awesome. So I've been enjoying taking advantage of that because otherwise I just get stuck in my my world of creating more products and <laughs> making pretty things. Yeah, that's so wonderful to hear and I think a lot of, well, all the other finalists have expressed similar experiences, yeah. which is just, it, it's a beautiful thing to be a part of and very exciting. So, uh, well, congratulations yeah. again on your win, Emma. And um, thank you. it's been fabulous to talk to you and learn about Hudson Toke and there are so many takeaways from an export and business building perspective and market share perspective. So I really appreciate your generosity with, with sharing those. It's okay. Yeah, there's probably tons more. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, um, I think it's important for people to know that, that you don't have to follow mainstream and sometimes coming up with crazy ideas and actually just pushing through with it, even if it, it hurts financially and mentally, it's well worth doing. It's so fulfilling. It always blows my mind how markets that seem so niche to me as an outsider, like pet treats, are such an enormous business on the inside. Emma's ability to see opportunities in industries that she then makes her specialty is a skill that we can all learn from. But to then put those ideas into action and have the patience to navigate the tangled spiderweb that is the world of export is another thing altogether. When we jumped off our call, Emma told me how incredible it has been meeting and workshopping alongside the other national finalists and how it almost doesn't matter who wins the national gong. They'll all be there cheering each other on. This feels very heartening and exciting to me when you consider how competitive and thick-skinned some businesses have to be to thrive. If you've enjoyed today's chat, consider sharing it around your group chats to help spread the Grazy Her word. And if you have a slice of time while waiting for the kettle to boil or for the school bus to arrive, please rate and review Life on the Land. It really helps us out. Until next time, keep well. My name is Em Herbert and this is a Grazy Her podcast. Mm-hmm.